Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, your weekly dose of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy and sitting beside me are the very lovely Miss Medic, Lolly Doc and Dr Malice. And I have to say there's something that feels like family about the lineup I've got sitting beside me today. Last week was Radiothon and it was amazing and fun and there was the buzz in the studio and we did a bit of cross-pollinating between radiotherapy teams. So I was hanging out with some people from radiotherapy that I don't normally get to hang out with, like anabolics and McZiff and it was and um, malpractice and it was lots of fun. But there's something today that feels like coming home, I think, having my same team around me. I missed you guys last week. So it's great to be oh, back. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and the team has brought you some wonderful things this week, people. Let me tell you what we've got coming up. Firstly, it's it's come to our attention over past weeks that we haven't been giving Malice enough airtime. And this isn't just my sense. We actually had a caller who said, Malice always goes last and you always run out of time and we never get to hear all of his gems. So... Stay tuned today. Malice will not be going last. We are going to go to Malice's segment even before the half hour point. And Malice, you can have the whole show if you need. (laughs) The pressure's on, Malice. He's going to be talking about positive aspects of negative emotions. I don't know if you're someone who has ever noticed benefits to your negative emotions, but that's what Malice is going to be talking about today. And he's going to be talking about it in relation to unleashing your inner child and the benefits of that as well. So stay tuned for the long segment from Malice. Uh, and as well as that, it is Father's Day today. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, all the wonderful dads. Uh, and in in the spirit of Father's Day, we're going to do a segment on men's health that's about all the key men's health issues that are not the prostate and that's coming from lolly doc i don't know why we're um rejecting the prostate and um leaving it out i don't know what that's about but i'm sure he'll tell us all about it um and of course before we get to that segment and malice's segment we're going to have a range of topical stories from the week so we better get to it i think grab a cup of coffee and stick with us for some laughs some ketchup and some more as we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock Just listen to this. Well, team, good morning, good morning. I think I'm still feeling the buzz from Radiothon last week and I do just want to start by saying an immense thank you to every single subscriber, not just the subscribers to our show, though of course but we, we like you the most. Especially we like you the most. Especially. But to everyone who subscribes to the station, it's just heartwarming stuff and it does allow us to keep going for another year uh, and we're just incredibly grateful. So thank you so much. Now, team, great to have you back. Miss Medic, good morning. Good morning. So, given that we all feel like family, is that so that the worst of your behaviour can come out in this setting? Because we know that that's what happens. The family is a safe place to come home and unload all the crap that's accumulated <laughs> in your true. life. Is that, what, is that what this is? Yeah, despite all that psychological training I've had, I'm just going to revert to the same old dynamics. Only Excellent. child dynamics. I, feel, I still feel honoured to be part of that. <laughs> Thanks, Miss Medic. Thanks. <laughs> Lolly Doc, good morning. It's nice to like cross-pollinate with others, but it's always good to just pollinate in your own family, isn't it? <laughs> I no. knew that you would find a way to, <laughs> to turn bring it down. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Bit I early for an incest week. joke, isn't <laughs> it? I get ten oh five. Perhaps. Thank God, Radiothon's done, and all the subscribers are locked in. Hey, no. well, you can still subscribe. Right, That's, this is true. So, so if, you don't like, hold... if you like that joke, <laughs> by all means, call up nine three eight eight one zero two point seven. Yeah. Yeah. Malice, good morning. Well, I, I just also have to pick up on the buzzing business with the pollination because a couple of weeks ago I met a woman called uh, Sh- Sharon? No. Um, uh, <laughs> when you meet a woman, Malice, it's always good to remember a name. That's Maybe jot it down. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it starts with S in a, an incredible resort and she told me how to buzz with the bees. Now, I thought this is sort of one uh, incredible line, uh, which I've never heard before, but she literally meant she hugs beehives. Now, the per- Are you sure you didn't mishear her? It wasn't beehinds, was it? 
beehive. That's good. And what she was actually explaining is that because this is an organic place, so the bees that are resident at home in this resort need to be kept at home because if they go over to the next field 10 kilometres away and pollinate with uh, genetically engineered flowers, they will actually corrupt the organic flowers. Mm. So this is serious business that she has to really engage with the bees at a deep level. Now, the problem is that she's also allergic to bee bites. So she's got a pen ready with the adrenaline in it, should she get bitten. But she's found an extraordinary way to relate, and that is to buzz and breathe with the bees. And I thought, I've heard of many odd or eccentric things, but how do you get a bee and buzz with it? And she goes, uh, Malice, I'm talking about a hive with 60,000 bees. I said, woo, that's a lot of potential bites. Well, she said, if you hug the hive, they flap their wings and they have a buzz. That's where the energy comes from. And from the sound of the buzz, you know how excited or sedate they are. And she gets onto the breathing wavelength. And as she lowers her breath, so the hive settles and then they don't want to bite her. That's buzzing with the bees. It's a bee's knees of a story, isn't it? <laughs> Man, it's I want to go amazing. on holiday with you, George. They said, <laughs> you do some crazy things on holiday. Well, wow. this was the place where I whispered with horses four years ago, uh-huh. so I'm moving up the world. Yeah. I'm not yeah. surprised. Yeah. yeah. Well, stay tuned for a future show in where we uh, remember her name. <laughs> 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 moving right along. This is the Father's Day year of the spatula. <laughs> well, I got, I got spatulas what? today for the kids. Thanks, kids. So right. two spatulas. You like got two spatulas things. from yeah. the kids. And last year was the year of the bottle opener. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'd be interested to know what other Father's Day fathers got. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yes, I've got to go shopping after the show. <laughs> Get both a spatula yeah. and a bottle opener. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. The idea's really. done. Yeah, fantastic. Indulge him. Um... Miss Medic, has there been anything in the news in the past week that has something to do with medicine or psychology? (laughs) Not spatulas, not bees? Exactly. All right. Um, Yeah, look, there's been a couple little things. So one one little study that caught my eye because we – and it's probably – Um, tapping into my maternal guilt about the amount of screen time my children um, engage in. Um, But there was a study done in France showing that iPads are as effective as a sedative before surgery (laughs) for children as as, um, medications. So before surgery, yeah, so, yeah. So not replacing the anaesthetic. Oh, that's good. (laughs) This is about like in the lead up to surgery. Some children show, you know, quite um, severe signs of distress at certain points of the surgery. One is at the arrival to hospital, and the other one is at with separation from their parents right mm-hmm. before the surgery. Um, and so, some children had been given. Um, you know, medications, so benzodiazepine type medications that are sedating in that setting. But this study has shown that giving them an iPad with an age appropriate game to engage with was as relaxing and as effective at decreasing their anxiety levels as a sedative. Wow. So there you go. Feel better? I do a little bit, yeah. And I think, it, but look, at the flip side of that is obviously all the research that is showing that. Mm. Um, giving children devices to sort of calm them in the setting of a tantrum and things like that. Potentially, we don't know this because obviously there's no good long-term research on this as yet, um, may interfere with their own internal regulation systems that helps calm themselves down. Mm. But I think in the setting of surgery, which hopefully shouldn't be happening all the time, then it could be a really effective tool. And I don't I don't see how... I think that... Um, you know, the potential for negative side effects for medication far outweigh that from, you know, 10 minutes on an iPad. Yeah, if the choice is between medication or an iPad. Yeah. And as you say, it's not the sort of situation where you're thinking it's really important for my child to learn to decrease their anxiety every time they're about to have surgery. Yeah, it's not exactly. the case. It's, yeah, so it's because it's a specific sort of um, anxiety-provoking event that shouldn't, ho- you know, hopefully doesn't happen too frequently. I think it would be mm. an appropriate use. And, uh, yeah, it's good to hear that... Uh, technology can be helpful 
Fascinating. Settings. What's the app that they've got on, or what are they doing? Pre- oh, just a game, like anything right. sort of age appropriate. It didn't really matter what the what the app, or it didn't have to be something you know, like you know, mindfulness based relaxation app. It could just be okay. a game or something that so they wanted a, to watch. It's essentially distraction technique. It's distraction yeah. technique. Yeah. yeah. Um, just like, and we well, know that distraction works really well for children. Could I put a positive note on that? Because if the child is age appropriately engaged, that is actually a lesson in self-regulation, which is slightly different concept to distraction. And in fact, what one of the things as parents we'd like to do with our children is to transform their reliance on other regulation, that is, parent regulating, from baby onwards, feeding and and sleeping and resting and all the rest of it to actually register their own issues so if it's not seen just as a potential distraction but a potential lesson in self-regulation that would be a real plus mm. see adults self-regulating with their phones all the time yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. is that that's, an, that's an emotional intelligence thing isn't it self-regulation it, it definitely yeah, links into yes, because what we, the question is, what is it that you're regulating? It's the anxiety level to become tolerable. Yeah, and especially if it's coming from a, a, a trusted adult, like a caregiver, usually the mum or the dad or an older sibling, then there's a lot of trust built up that this is actually a, a beneficial process mm. uh, for for the regulation of the heightened anxiety due to separation potential surgery and so on. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Lolly Dog, what have you been looking at on your phone? We're talking about apps. Um, so this is a study out of the University of Texas looking at Tinder. I know. Nice. Yeah, I'm just, I've brought it up highbrow <laughs> again, I know. Um, this was actually presented at the American Psychological Association, so it does have right. some credence to it. Um, it was a study, it's really an observational study, it's a, it's a survey, um, but it was a c- controlled survey with case controls and they used uh, predominantly women, which I thought was a, a demographically biased study, but it was a 1,000 women and 300 men and they surveyed them on aspects of self-esteem and uh, body image and they discovered that people who use Tinder are more likely to have poor self-esteem, poor body image um, and require... I guess more um, inputs for external inputs for um, those those self esteem components. Um, obviously, it's not a causal thing, so it's not saying that Tinder causes this. But it was interesting that those people who were using Tinder um, had those those features. So I thought that was an interesting. Statement. So, is the thinking that people with lower self esteem and who are more focused on um, <coughs> their body and image and are dissatisfied with that are more likely to use Tinder? Is that the thinking? We don't know. I guess because it's causal. So I know you want me to go with this here, but I'm like, I guess we don't we don't know, do we? So I guess it could be that or it could be that um, people who use a service like that are more likely to, um, I guess, be part of that swipe right. Was it swipe left or swipe right? Did we decide? I think swipe, swipe right. left, no, right <laughs> for Clearly Tinder thumbs users up, in right. the studio left here. Left for thumbs down, is that right? right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I guess. Not um, that I'm on. Look, Tinder. if I if I was on on Tinder and I had a lot of thumbs down, I think that would probably impact my my ego slightly. I think it might dent it. I don't whether it actually has a. And from what I understand about Tinder, um, <laughs> I've actually never been on it. I would freely admit it if I had. Um, that it's just about looks, isn't it? You know, in the first glance, you're just looking at a photo and you decide yes or no based on just the photo. So it's yeah. very appearance-focused. I mean, what and would so be more so? Yeah, and if you're engaging with that, then that's your way of thinking. That's how you're judging others. That will also be how you judge yourself, I'm, I'm thinking. I imagine so. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, men seem to have worse outcomes or worse re- reported self-esteem in this particular study than the women did. Well, I thought mm. that was interesting. Hmm. It must be a blow to your self-esteem, you know, being on that sort of thing and possibly, I mean, I guess with any dating website, in fact, but I guess with other dating websites, you're putting a bit more of yourself out there and there's a bit more information about who you are and what interests you and, you know, a bit more about your mind, not just your body. Yeah, so when people don't like you on that, they don't like you for very... Yeah, but not only does it. That's right. It's not just your looks. It's not just your looks. It's also your personality (laughs) (laughs) and your grammar. (laughs) Right. Any take-home messages, Lolly? Um, Don't don't use Tinder. No, I don't don't know. I shouldn't say stuff like that. Or just Um, be maybe aware of potential. 
you know, your own feelings about your own self-esteem when engaging with an app like that for perhaps a long-term basis? Well, I, I think that's probably true for life in general, isn't it? Like, if you, if you expose yourselves to... Uh, to situations, thank you, I'm getting a laugh for expose, really? Yeah. <laughs> My goodness. Um, to situations where where your self-esteem is under threat, then I guess you'd probably need to be aware of where you're at with that, don't you? I mean, you guys are the psychologists. I, 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 just, I just, like, resuscitate people. <laughs> <laughs> and, look, I guess there's probably... Um, a range of motivations for using Tinder, you know, that, that fall right across the spectrum. And, you know, at one end, it's a, a playful, fun thing. But at the other end, there's people who are really looking for a partner. And that's a vulnerable place to be, to be putting yourself out there and, and trying to find a partner and, and yeah, putting your vulnerable self out there in, in public view. So it's not that surprising that, I guess, for people who are more up that end of the spectrum, that it could be a pretty confronting and, and soul-destroying process. There must be some parallel with, um, I think, about cyberbullying and, and kids in primary school and, and secondary school, and that's been making the news a lot recently. And mm. I, I think about how the, that appearance focus is such a sort of viral thing in, in social media, isn't it? It's, there is a lot of looks-based mm. things. So there, there must be some sort of underlying current amongst all these online, mm. whether it's dating, whether it's Facebook, whether it's any of those those particular social medias. It's just, it's, it's rampant. Yeah. Just before we get to our proper big segments of the show, uh, we've got one more little story from the week that we thought it would be worth mentioning. Miss Medic... Okay, so I'm going to talk just briefly about the shingles vaccine. And it is a vaccine that's been around for a little while, but it is becoming, as of the 1st of November, it's actually on the immunisation schedule, which means that it will be freely available for people at the age of 70 with a five-year catch-up program for people aged 71 to 79. If you're outside of that age and you're over the age of 50, you can pay for it privately. But this is the first time it's been on the immunisation schedule. So I just wanted to quickly overview shingles because I think it's a condition that kind of... It's a little bit confusing for the general com- uh, community, basically because it is a, it's a viral illness, but it actually... <clears throat> Uh, occurs as the result of a reactivation of a viral infection called varicella that people would have had years ago, and that is chickenpox. Mm-hmm. So you get chickenpox as a child, um, or you did, and we now have a chickenpox vaccine also for ch- for children, but say for the older generation where that wasn't available. Um, get chickenpox as a child, it then lays dormant in the body at one of the nerve roots, and then typically when you're older, so above the age of 50, but particularly above the age of, say, 70, this can reactivate and you get this blistering rash in the area of skin supplied by that nerve root. Uh, and it can have a number of complications associated with it. It's typically a, a self-limiting illness, meaning... Uh, it would just clear of its own accord. But we see a certain proportion of people getting some really quite nasty complications of this. The one that gets probably the most attention is uh, what's called post-herpetic neuralgia, which is ongoing nerve pain in the distribution of uh, involvement on the skin. So I've known a couple of people who've had shingles and the thing I remember is just how much pain they were in. Yeah, because it's sort of this nerve pain, which is quite different to other types of pain, it can be really... Um, really uncomfortable and, and difficult to treat. So um, essentially, and look, we know that, say, if you live to the age of 85, you've got half of that population will have shingles. So, you know, it's quite um, it's quite a common thing and we definitely see a lot of it in gen- general practice land. So, um, yeah, so it's good news for people that are in that age bracket and if you have had shingles in the past... Uh, it, and you're over the age of, if you're 70 or above, then yes, you should still have this vaccine, which we think decreases by at least half your chance of getting an episode of shingles. And even more than that, it probably decreases the case of these complications such as post-herpetic neuralgia. It takes you know, down 67% decrease in those episodes, which is really what we're trying to get rid of. So yes, speak to your GP. As of the 1st of November, freely available for 70-year-olds with a five-year catch-up program for 71 to 79-year-olds. 
You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Malice, I promise, over to you for as long as you want. Tell us everything you've got. <laughs> whoa, whoa, what an invitation. <laughs> uh, so obviously no more with the buzzing with the bees. Uh, this is really a, a segment that was prompted by an article in the newspaper titled Feeling Down? Question mark. Well, that's no crime. Now, that's for a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, an invitation to read and what's going on. And if some of us who are old enough recall, obviously not the ladies in the room, uh, but... <laughs> Sorry, Lolly Doc. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Lolly Doc, uh, Kent, maybe not me, certainly it was old, old stories. <laughs> what Kent, don't what throw a tad to you and leave the room, we're going to be stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down, Kent. <laughs> Back in the 90s, there was a real movement of happiness and positive psychology. And I must say at that time, it left me just a little, little uneasy. What's happened to the downside of human nature? But that was sort of booed out of court. It was sort of like a party pooper. How dare you bring up talk about negativity or negative emotions? So what does one do? One hangs around for another couple of decades and the wheel comes around. And then this title, Feeling Down, well, that's no crime. And I said, whoa, this is promising to be good. And we're apparently in the second wave of the happiness wellness movement where it's legitimate and indeed a positive to acknowledge the negative emotions. And I thought, this is my sort of article. So when we talk about uh, emotions, we're clearly talking about, for in a cultural sense, the positives, the happiness, the joy, the upbeat ones. And the classic negative ones are anger, fear, contempt and disgust. Now, that seemed to me reasonable as a starter. So let's, for the first part of this segment, just stay with the starter and then we'll get into the really juicy, heavy stuff, which is my area. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's deep water. So for, let's start with the softly, softly. And why on earth should these negative emotions have such a positive valence? Well, evolutionary psychologists have an obvious answer that if we've got these emotions after all these thousands of years of evolving maybe they serve a function duh <laughs> i mean who would have thought that they don't serve a function well it was the first wave of the happiness movement and there in the meditation and other tools and techniques we were prescribed sitting down and watching and detaching ourselves from the negatives, the patterns that we're habituated to, and like the metaphor was like a cloud. Let it just pass till the next cloud comes along or look for the silver lining in the dark cloud rather than actually engage with the dark cloud. So, all right, what is one to do? One bows down sort of to public opinion. But, of course, medicine doesn't go just with public opinion. It goes a little bit more deeply on science. And, indeed, the negative feelings, such as contempt, disgust and fear, have got the most important regulatory activities, both within our personal safety and our relationship safety. A practical example. When you pick food from the fridge, do you look at it to see if it's off or do you smell it? Most people take a whiff. I mean, obviously, three months old mould is a giveaway. <laughs> but a three or four day old food left over, you're not quite sure. So you give it a sniff. And you can tell whether that's got a sort of disgust in it or not. And that tells you this is off. So... At the most basic evolutionary level, it's what we eat is a self-regulatory. Without eating, we don't get too far. So it's a most basic regulatory system that we don't even think about as a negative emotion, but we're disgusted by that food and more than likely we'll throw it out straight away. And we certainly don't let anyone in our family eat it and hopefully not ourselves as well. Now, that's a practical example at the self-regulatory. What about in a relationship? How does an emotion that is negative help us to actually, well, evolutionarily, the basics are a reproduction and the survival of the species? Well, if someone is really on your bad book or in your Tinder, you've swiped them the <laughs> other way, it was because you didn't think they had it. 
the chemistry, the X factor to get your genes propagated. <laughs> and how that happens is... Or they uh, weren't rich enough. Right. Okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a highly selective Tinder for you. Yep. <laughs> All right. So, th- but the point is, even if they're socially not up at the certain level, that's a translation that it doesn't really turn us on to the positives. The the adrenaline, the uh, dopamine, the love hormones do not kick in. They, in fact, get suppressed and you go and onto the next page of Tinder. And hopefully, sooner or later, it all clicks. Now, this is the example of positive and negative emotions. I was, was going to say, anger, in my mind, has a similar protective effect. So if you're in a relationship and you are in a, I guess, in a, uh, a conversation and you're in disagreement... Um, and one person becomes angry. That's a that's a self protective mechanism almost. Um, Absolutely, to, to shut down the the negative emotion that you're getting from the other side. Well, it's it's a dis- a signalling system to move away and to make sure that you're going to be safe. Because the bottom line of all these regulations is the insurance of sh- safety. Nothing can happen either in a personal regulating or a relationship regulation if it's unsafe. So even a sort of wonderful example like they're not, quote, rich enough, for your lifestyle that may not be safe enough to enter into a relationship with someone. So it's not actually the dollar value, but underneath there are safety issues and status issues and many other. But it comes down to your translation of what's safe and comfortable and the zone of preference for you. But what happens when these negative emotions are not working in your favour? Ah, yes. Because sometimes, like, that whole feeling of safety will, or anxiety or anger, what if it's that there isn't really a true threat but your body is interpreting, on your mind is it interpreting as surely then those negative emotions are not, are not something to be sort of relied valued upon. Yeah. or even valued. And this is the, where it gets more interesting than the sort of 101 is where you lose emotional agility. And this is a book that's come out uh, written by a Harvard psychologist, Susan David, uh, and it's in fact titled Emotional Agility. And where the emotions, whose function is to make us flow, to get on and really grow creatively, progress in personal relationships, work setting, love life, uh, leadership positions and so on. Where that agility is lost, we get into trouble because of habitual patterns. And that's where the negative emotions really get their bad name. So sadness with lost agility becomes depression. Depression with lost agility becomes psychotic depression and stuporose, unmoving person who can't get out of bed, can't actually even eat. Now, these are the extremes, which I'll come to later, but this is the loss of the flow, the regulation, and what is called in medicine homeostasis, the regulatory systems that keep us buoyant and uplifted and, when necessary like loss of a loved one, a betrayal in a relationship, a child's illness or even worse, then it is totally appropriate for us to feel the negative emotions as part of the flow of life. So it's only when that becomes an established pattern after the event of reasonable time of grieving, mourning and working through the loss, say, you know, even up to a year or two years for the most serious relationships, that is when the negative gets to be a bad-named experience. You're listening to Radiotherapy, and we're talking with Dr Malice about the positive aspects of negative emotions. Now, the question is, what do we do once we recognise we get into this pattern that has lost agility? And that's where we say, oh, you're always onto that moaning or groaning or complaining. And you lose friendships and loved ones like that because they distance themselves and disengage. Who wants to hear a constant stream of complaints? Can I just ask about this word agility? I don't know if I quite understand it correctly, but what are we meaning when we talk about emotional agility? What does that actually mean in reality? It it really refers to the popular phrase of living in the now moment 
agility is being responsive to what's happening now. Right. It's not what happened when I was a child. And there was a wonderful example at the same place, uh, this Wingana retreat where I met the woman who uh, buzzed with the bees. <laughs> there was an example given by, this is Sharon who gave the example. And she said, imagine you meet someone in your office for the first time, you take an instant dislike to them. You've never met them. She then role-played a scene that back when the person you uh, were a three-year-old and you attended pre-kinder and you loved going to kinder and you loved the teacher and one day the teacher, your favourite teacher, was missing and they had a standing teacher for the day and you drew a special picture for your favourite teacher and this standing teacher just didn't even respond to your special drawing that was a gift. So you took a real deep hurt from that and this person in your current workplace reminds you of looking like that third grade yeah three-year-old terrible the worst day in your life now that's not mental agility that is being rock hard stuck stuck in your past and that's the contrast between someone who can actually recognize that because we all have that i mean we all had days in our school surely where we really thought the end of the world was nigh. You know, the first love affair with a look across the sixth grade kindergarten or sixth grade desk, and it wasn't reciprocated. (laughs) Swipe left. (laughs) (laughs) And imagine if I'm the one who was swiped. Well, how long before I approach another one who I like if I know that the last time that happened it was swiped? That becomes a loss of my agility and my creativity, my relationship, and so on. Now, unfortunately, some people go on to develop these mindsets as part of their personality and character, and we call them rigid, obsessive, obsessive-compulsive, and then they get into rituals even to characterise this warding off of the negative affect. They'd rather live a life washing their hands 30 times a day. They'd rather live their lives not going outside in agoraphobia than to face some of the ordinary negatives that happened way, way back when and then. And so this is the contrast between agility and rigidity. So the question obviously comes up, what can we do? What are the tools that Susan Davis and the new movement recognises with these negative affects? So the first thing And this seems so obvious, like, why even say it? But many people don't have a name for these feeling states. They just don't know that they're anxious. They don't know they're in the middle of a panic attack. They don't know that they're depressed. They just say, oh, life has got me down. Or I just can't get out of bed. Or... All my friends think I've gone really dangerous. This is, would be paranoia. So people who don't recognise these negatives are already at a huge disadvantage because they don't even know they've got the condition. So while it seems trite, it's the first step. And we'll come back to the first step at the last uh, tool to, to, to regulate these uh, so situations. So the first step is just having an awareness of what you're actually feeling and, and what's going on, you know, what, what emotional state you're currently in. And the difficulty is you won't know. So it cannot be your own self-awareness. This is where it comes to the nearest and dearest or friends or professionals to actually keep this in mind that the person who's sitting in front of us in our counselling and in our therapy may not know they're actually sitting there trembling with anxiety. Mm. They literally don't know. And it's hard for someone who is in touch with those feelings to appreciate what, what anguish they must be in, not to even have a language. And when you point it out, they would probably deny it. They might even say, no, 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 I mean, actually, I know what you're talking about. That's not me. And you say, oh, but, you know, you're sweating. It's pretty hot. They'll come up with rationalizations, anything but to acknowledge their self-awareness. So this is a simple sentence to say, find the word, but in practice, oh, oh, so difficult. It's a real barrier. But let's move on. Let's say that they've actually got over the language barrier. 
And this is really not having a language. Now they've got the words and they've got the word that I'm anxious immediately becomes a negative. This is one of those negative emotions. And let's reframe it. Anxiety is a normal a feeling state. It's a warning system based on your sympathetic nervous system that something is a bit of a threat or danger. So you start a new conversation saying, look, what you're showing me is normal. It's healthy. But let's find what is your trigger. Where does your worry come from? Because you are worried. Let's call it anxiety. It's a worry. But what's the reason for it? I've got no reason. That's the immediate response. I'm just a worrier, a worry, worry bead. No, your body's much more clever than that. Your body's actually registering because something is happening or in the recent past it has happened. Has there been an illness in the family? Have you lost a loved one? Someone perhaps who you've had a deep relationship with and your loss is worrying you. Are you going through something with your own health that you have never experienced before? And have you got a worry that it might be the C word even? <gasps> yes, you've, you know, and, and there's this aha moment. But you as the one who witnesses are obliged in a way to go through a checklist of common worries that we all have for the some person who has no idea that that could be the trigger for their worry. Mm. So immediately we move from the non-word to the negative word to the positive word. Now, once we've gone to the positive word, let's say to the person, can we now move to the next level and start imagining you rebooting yourself? You've got a computer. When you reboot, you know all the old programs go to the trash and you've got a new clean disk and you can actually create a new program. Now, let's say you've got, let's say, shingles. Now, in my case, I do have shingles. I'm very fortunate that it's a mild form. The first time I went to my GP, I said, oh, Dr. M, I've got this awful rash. I went to medical school with him. He said, Malice, tell me a spot diagnosis. What have you got? I said, I have no idea, but it's like red and it's itchy and it's spreading and I'm really worried. He goes, come on, diagnosis 101. <laughs> Where is it? I said, it's all around my back. It's from the backbone to the side. He goes, is that a clue? I said, well, it's a... Conversion disorder. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. <laughs> no? That is precisely no. what it's not. But I was worried. Who knows what this is? And I'm supposedly a doctor here. And he said, well, let me give you a clue. It's called a dermatome, which is the strip of the skin supplied by that nerve. I said, look... I'm so young, I can't possibly be having shingles, can I? He goes, two points. You're not so young, and yes, you can. And third, that's what you've got. <laughs> now, that really is the illustration of a language. I didn't have the language that the rash is shingles. If it was, it's negative. But by hearing about it, I've learned that that's a signal for me to take a break, that my immune system is down. Fortunately, it's not a very dangerous version I have, but it's actually a learning from the negative to a positive. Now, finally, how did I do this learning? And it wasn't from one day to the next visiting my GP and saying, thank you, GP, you are my friend, I love Although you. I love it when people say <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> For all my patients out there, please do. <laughs> please do. Well, I should actually, after the show, ring up, not on Sunday, but uh, tomorrow, I'll ring up my GP and say thank you belatedly. <laughs> because five years later, I've learnt my lesson that when that comes about, I really should take a bit of a step back and a breather. Now, that's a pretty ordinary language thing to say, a breather. But, of course, in positive and negative emotions, a breather is the essence. Breathing is the manual override for our stress system. Very simply, when it mean, we mean, you, you often hear the, the idea about taking a deep breath, inhale to the count of four, exhale to the count of five or six. Why do we do that? It's because we're in a very acidic state when we're stressed. That is, our blood, blood chemistry has gone into the acid state rather than the alkaline. So what does breathing do? If we go back to our medical knowledge, it blows off the carbon dioxide from deep, deep within your lungs. Because the carbon dioxide actually gets converted to acid, 
HCL, breathing deeply shifts our blood chemistry to alkaline. And that is one of the reasons why we settle down from anxiety. The second, of course, is that it engages the parasympathetic system rather than the sympathetic. And so we rebalance ourselves merely by deep, conscious, aware breathing. That's what we mean by it's the manual override. So can I say if I've got this? So we're talking about the positives of negative emotions and I guess how to manage your negative emotions so that they don't become long-standing and that you can access the positive in them. And so if I've heard you correctly, the first thing is to be able to put a name to it, so to name what's going on. Secondly, it's to, I guess, normalise and understand that word, so sort of to attach a bit of a positive, to, to understand why it exists and, and the function that it serves us, the positive function. And finally, to then reboot a bit, you know, take a breather, reboot, which is, I guess, part of the process that prevents this negative state from being a prolonged state, and to then you know, move into the rest of our lives, which would allow us to be going with the flow and to be in the moment. So that sort of reboot and breather is the sort of final state to stage of, of moving forward. Is that into emotional agility? Into emotional agility. Yes. So we've mm. come full circle from emotional rigidity when we didn't even have a, an, a word in translating that into neuroscience, we didn't have a left hemisphere word to regulate this right brain emotion, giving it a word, then not giving it a positive spin, but actually giving it a realistic test that this there is it is there for a purpose, therefore highlights its valence and value in the right brain. And then by the manual override, by the breathing, it actually uncouples that stuck pattern that was in fact the symptom or the syndrome. Uh, And hysterical conversions, uh, Olipop, you raised earlier, is the classic example where this has gone so deeply wrong that in fact body parts stop working and you get what was called in the old system hysterical conversion reactions and you could go blind without any physiological problems. You could go lame, you could lose sensation, you could lose body functions and even consciousness uh, this is the non-organic fits so the the implications of this process of first naming they're not just positive reframe but actually describe the value it's telling you a bodily signal something is so out of whack that unless you do something your body's going to go more out of whack mm-hmm. so it's up to you to re-regulate and by using your manual override That is taking a breath. It is not just a breath. It's actually the reboot for that previous pattern that was rigid. And as you say, autonomy, this is the moment that emotional agility becomes available. You don't have to work at it. It's the byproduct of all this process. Malice, thank you so much. We should give you more time more often, I think. (laughs) That was really superb work and I learnt loads. So thank you for that segment. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the interests of it being Father's Day and the last 10 minutes of our show on Father's Day... Lolly Doc, I thought I would throw to you to give us a bit of a men's health flavour to round out the show. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we, we do talk a lot about the prostate in men's health <laughs> and um, I'm not going to tackle that because I think there's been plenty of shows talking about the prostate. We've pretty much milked that oh, as much as we possibly oh, can. Boom, boom, Thank boom. you very much. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to tackle perhaps the second, third, fourth and fifth causes of, of men's morbidity and mortality in Australia. And we do know that, that men live um, shorter lives than women in Australia. And that's um, not just a sort of genetic predisposition. There's reasons for that. And I wanted to sort of, I guess, give an overview of those things. So the second most common cause of death for men in Australia is suicide. Um, so men uh, have three quarters of the completed suicide um, rates in Australia. So that's four suicides a day um, that men have. Oh and there's probably about 23,000 
um, deaths per annum attributable to preventable uh, causes for men's health. And, Can you and just say that number again? Yeah, so this is 23,000 deaths a year that men experience outside of what would be expected from normal old age or, or so preventable causes. So um, these are the, it's, a, it's a real issue um, that uh, men experience um, particular health problems that we're probably not tackling all that well. So in 2010, uh, the government put out the National Male Health Policy, uh, which was a, an action plan that the federal government put out, and it was all very exciting. And, and in fact, uh, there's a women's uh, health, national health plan as well, which uh, not only has federal funding, but in each of the states there is, um, I guess, structures that exist that support that policy uh, framework. So, for example, breast screening, um, postpartum depression, those sorts of things all come under that, that banner. Um, and there are offices for women's health in every state in Australia. There are no men's uh, offices, office for men's health in any of the states. And in fact, none of the states have an articulated uh, architecture in policy uh, for that, that supports the federal government's men's health. And I thought that was fascinating. It's astounding, um, isn't it? Yeah, in- incredible. So... Um, if we look at what has been funded, there's things like men's sheds, for example, um, that has had some funding, uh, men's uh, health groups, uh, but there's very little in terms of um, social, social, I guess, supportive structures. So the, the men's health policy framework basically talks about um, a social model of health. And if you look at the causes of men's health, so suicide, workplace accidents, Um, ischemic heart disease of which the risk is poor nutrition, smoking, uh, high cholesterol and hypertension which are all preventable lifestyle risk factors. Uh, There are no kind of social policy frameworks that exist in, in, in states to support that. Men suffer from a strange illness called head in the sand ostrich syndrome <laughs> um, but there's there's actually very good evidence that, that men do not seek preventative health um, mm. and Miss Medic would certainly experience this um, there's some very good research that demonstrates that men wait for the um, appearance of an illness um, or the end effects of an illness before they seek help and in fact their main uh, source of information for health comes from friends um, and newspapers. So very little from medical practitioners or from sort of medical information. Mm. Uh, so prevention, which is required for things like hypertension, smoking, um, social or psychosocial sort of situations, um, uh, is something that men just don't don't address. So... I guess the reason that I thought this was an interesting thing for Father's Day was to take the opportunity... Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, that's right. <laughs> um, was, was, to, was to take the opportunity to, to think about how we could reframe the way we approach men's health, um, how we go about it and how we, um, I guess, have the conversation about uh, to men in particular about how they should access health care. Um, Miss Medic, I'm, I'm interested actually in your practice because I, I know that um, this is a real issue and we're lucky in, in urban Australia um, where we don't have many of the um, high-risk groups and that's rural men, uh, Indigenous men um, and um, I, guess, I guess we do have socially isolated uh, men, particularly those who are widowed or divorced or... or, or with a mental health condition. Yeah. Um, look, I think... I totally agree with everything you're saying. We don't have a really good approach and we don't have a really good way of engaging men to engage with preventative care. Um, It still astounds me that I see men in their 40s and 50s having a, uh, a cardiac event 
um, as being the first notification of them having an underlying issue with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, etc. So high cholesterol, high blood pressure. I mean, that that simply shouldn't happen. That you know, someone's coasting along with life would say that they've got no relevant past medical history and then have a heart attack. Um, and we do. We, I still see this. So, look, I think we need to be better at engaging men to come in and see their GP. Sometimes it's it's the classic situation of the female in a male's life demanding that they go see a GP for a checkup. I always, sometimes dads will rock up with babies now or at the first six week checkup, and I mention to them, "Oh, you're not on now." You're not registered with this clinic. You should come in for a checkup as well. Um, your health is really important. You're now a dad. I, you know, use all those sort of. So you're touting for business, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, times are tough. Yeah, yeah. We haven't had a Medicare rebate rise in a long time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's you know, it's really important, and I think that it. it I think that we. I think that the stats are, as well, when you talked about the suicide rate, it's for 15 to 44-year-olds, it's the number one killer of men mm. is suicide. Yep. So one every minute somewhere, some, some bloke in the world takes their own life, which is a horrendous mm. thing. And while I'm saying that, can I just, if this brings up any issues for you, Lifeline's number is 1311, double, uh, and it's a, it's just a it's a terrible state to be in, and I, like I think that we need to we need to be a lot better about talking to men about their health, encouraging them to seek preventative care, talking to each other about, and telling each other when they go and see their GP or that their blood pressure is a bit up, and just sharing that information amongst each other. One of the things that I found really fascinating with the, and I know this is maybe a long bow to to draw, but with the domestic violence conversation, a lot of the ads that I guess impacted me or impacted my male friends were the ones where men were talking about um, having zero tolerance to domestic violence. And I wondered whether there was an opportunity to have men talking about men's health on, you know, advertisements or or television programs or whether it's an opportunity, that's how we should go about advertising or that's how we should go about the preventative kind of approach to to this. I think it's a fantastic idea. So if you haven't bought your dad a present for Father's Day, there you have it. Book him an appointment with his GP. (laughs) Yep. And a spatula. Spatula is a reason. spatula and a bottle opener. You've been listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR with Dr Malice, Lolly Doc, Miss Medic, myself, Dr Autonomy, and the wonderful Kent pushing all the buttons Thank so you, smoothly Kent. for us. Um, it's been our pleasure to bring you this last hour of information. Stay tuned because the scientists are coming up with Einstein a go-go and we will be back next week at 10 o'clock with more medical and psychological chat. See you then. 3RRR You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.